Hello and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst. There really are things that should transcend politics, like health and safety and climate change, but somehow they never do. Take vaccinations. I know that using the word science and miracle in the same sentences is, is contradictory, but miracle is a good word to describe what modern science achieved in creating not one, but several effective vaccines against this pandemic, COVID-19. But politics has quickly brought us back down to earth and to our knees. Politics is interfering in a huge way with our ability to convert this scientific miracle into a medical miracle. There is a famous maxim in public health, vaccines don't end pandemics, successful vaccination campaigns and epidemics. And right now, vaccination campaigns are a mess all over the world. And the culprit is, is not the coronavirus, it is politics. There are so many variants of this political problem. Rich countries are hoarding vaccines and thus leaving the rest of the world vulnerable. The United States alone has five times more vaccines on order than it needs to vaccinate every American, including kids who at the moment are not even improved to get the jab. The United States and other rich countries are also leading the fight at the World Trade Organization against a proposal by India and South Africa to make generic vaccine doses for developing countries. In other words, the US and other rich countries are putting the property rights of pharmaceutical companies above the lives of poor people. But as ugly as all of this is, it is at least predictable behavior by the rich towards everyone else. We have seen this all before. What is really weird though, are the people within the United States who are reluctant to take the vaccine because, because well, politics, that's right. You thought the mask polarization was bad. This is politics. It is one thing to be suspicious because these vaccines were made at a warp speed or to be reluctant because you know the medical community now offering you this vaccine once experimented on communities of color, native communities and on women, and then they got away with it and no one really knew. But how to explain that Republicans are resisting the vaccine in numbers that are larger than any other group? Republicans are three times as likely as Democrats to say they will not be vaccinated. All told, half of all Republicans either say they won't get the vaccine or aren't sure yet. When you combine these resistant Republicans with other groups, including kids, many of whom are not yet eligible, there is a real danger that the country will fail to vaccinate enough people to stop COVID. And you will be wearing those masks, those of you who still are, for a very long time. Having hoarded enough vaccines for everyone, we will fail because we cannot get everyone to take the vaccine. I would like to blame all this on Donald Trump. I would like to blame a lot on Donald Trump, but I'm not going to because here is why. Not because it's Lent. I'm giving other, uh, other things for Lent right now. I don't blame Donald Trump because the only way forward is actually to depoliticize the vaccine. Get that? None of us are all safe until all of us are safe. You can't just tweet that. We have to mean it and live it. That means giving away some of our doses to countries where not a single person has been vac vaccinated yet. That means loosening intellectual property rights so other countries can make more vaccines. And here at home, it means encouraging conservatives to take the vaccine. Trump and Melania took the vaccine in secret. 
he should get out now and make sure every one of his backers knows he took the vaccine and that he believes they should too. Hell, take credit for the vaccine as you have been. Or maybe somebody should just leak the photos of them getting the vaccine for the good of the country. And conservative media needs to step up big time. Rupert Murdoch got his vaccine. Take a picture of that, put that out there. Any of the other uh, OAN, Newsmax, any of these people who are on the shows, who own the companies that have gotten their vaccine, somebody leak the photos. This isn't a political game. It is a matter of life and death. Even if you don't care about the rest of us, think about your viewers, your own viewers. I'm looking at you, Fox News. You've got an old audience vulnerable to COVID and your, your ratings right now are not that great. So you may need them around. Look at the positive way the uh, Christian Broadcasting Network approached the story for their audience. Now that three vaccines are available in the U.S., President Biden and health experts believe there will be enough to vaccinate the adult population by Memorial Day. The key will be getting shots in arms. For me as a scientist who's also a Christian, this is an answer to a lot of prayers, and it feels as if this is the way in which God is helping us get through this. The way in which God is helping us get through it. It's creative and it took some guts and it was great spin. We've become so used to media organizations pandering to build their audiences. We have almost forgotten what it sounds like to tell people what they need to hear rather than what they want to hear. Finding a messenger who will be listened to is part of making this work. So good for them. That was smart. Get a scientist who's a Christian. Talk about science, which God created. I don't know. Whatever you want to say. If it works, it works. We all should be looking for ways to get the message out to our people in ways that they can appreciate, you know, to stay healthy and spread the facts, not the virus. It's all about where you meet people, meet them where they are. So that's how we can all protect each other. So somebody has got to step up on the conservative side, maybe take the lead with the Christian Broadcasting Network. All right. Um, speaking of <laughs> alternative realities, we have a wonderful show today. Tom Nelson is on. He is not in an alternative reality, but he is running against Ron Johnson. He's running for uh, the Senate of uh, the senator to be senator of Wisconsin. And then later we have Napoleon Dynamite. Napoleon uh, Dynamite. Oh my God. Napoleon the Legend. I'm going to call him that now. Uh, Napoleon the Legend and Josh McCon Russell are joining us to talk about today's events. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. So a couple of years ago, I did some reporting in Wisconsin. Uh, there were a lot of races happening at once, and I'm excited to, to start talking about Wisconsin again, uh, especially this week, because the current senator from Wisconsin has been putting his foot in his mouth uh, and revealing how much of a racist he is. I'm, I'm thrilled to have Tom Nelson on. He is currently the county executive of I got to correct me on this. Out of Gamey County. That's right. Correct. That's right. Good it. for you. I That's love great. Love it. love it. Love it. <laughs> and of course, uh, running for U.S. Senate in Wisconsin, Tom Nelson. Thank you for joining us. Good to be here. So there's there's a lot happening right now. You have a primary. Uh, you also have a current senator who's been getting a lot of attention Um you know, not not sure what his strategy is, but before we get to those two things, let's let's just talk about what inspired you to run and a little bit about your background. Okay, well, um, I'm a pastor's kid from Little Shoot, Wisconsin, and I grew up on a working class neighborhood called Carolyn Drive, and all the dads were mill workers except my dad. So we had blue collars, and my dad, a Lutheran pastor, wore the white collar. 
And yeah, some people get the joke, some people don't. Um, and so I spent summers of college working at a paper mill and as county executive, I saved a paper mill, which is a subject of my book that was just released last week. And my life experience is a little bit different than Senator Johnson's. I, I worked on my uncle's farm bailing hay. I bust tables at a supper club, stock shelves at the local grocery store. And, you know, I mean, I have the life experience. I have a pretty good sense of what someone like me, a U.S. Senator, could affect and help working families, whether it's Medicare for all, whether it's a Green New Deal, whether it's pushing back and fighting bad trade deals that has cost a lot of jobs, not just in the Fox Valley, but across the state. And there really isn't, I think, more of a stark contrast in those terms and a lot of other terms with Ron Johnson, who in business and in politics, was born with a, with a silver spoon in his mouth. <laughs> or a foot in his mouth, too. Um. <laughs> or wasn't it uh, Ann Richards who said the late great Ann Richards, a silver foot in his mouth? So. Silver foot in his mouth, exactly. That's of George H.W. Bush, I, if I recall properly. Yes. Um, so this is interesting because, uh, you know, Wisconsin obviously has been a center point um, in in national politics uh, for many years, and obviously it's where the progressive movement. So, so many of our of 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 our previous union laws and uh, you know th the great protections workers have have come out of Wisconsin and have been pulled back because the Koch brothers uh, and others have invested so much to 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 make Wisconsin the um, petri dish for their libertarian experiment. Um, but you know, the, the last couple of weeks, I've, I've heard people call Wisconsin Republican because of Johnson, hearing about uh, you know, the words that he said. And they say, well, you know, he's from a conservative state. But that's just not the case. Can you, can you explain to folks yeah. what the makeup of Wisconsin really is like? That's right. Well, let me make two comments. First of all, going back to the comment, I said that he had a silver spoon in his mouth, not just in business, because he is a billionaire son-in-law, but also in politics. I mean, he happened to get elected in 2010 and 2016, which were pretty good Republican years. And unfortunately, he defeated the great Senator Russ Feingold. And it's not lost on me that this is the seat of Russ Feingold, as well as Gaylord Nelson. But another thing we have to take into consideration, not a lot of people really talk about this, is even though that we have paper-thin paper, paper-thin paper margins, so it's been plus or minus about 20 to 30,000 votes. That was the margin that Trump won in 16. That was a margin that Democratic Governor Tony Evers won in 2018 and President Joe Biden about 20,000 in last year. But I think what makes it so close is not the politics, but you know, um, laws that have restricted voter access. You know, if you look at the studies about what voter I, you know, what voter ID, you know, you know, you're looking at anywhere between one to three percentage points. So instead of you know um, a state that's maybe plus or minus one point, um, it's actually you know more blue than I think people give it credit for, and I think that that's a really big, um, a really big reason in that regard. Um, I was really surprised to see that to learn that uh, Milwaukee is the most segre segregated city in the country. It's a, a, a little bit, you know, on, on one hand, it's surprising because it's a northern state. And I think folks would think of the Deep South being more segregated. But on the other hand, there has been so much investment by conservatives in um, in restrictive voting laws in Wisconsin, as you just mentioned. And of course, um, 
uh, making sure that people of color are are not mobilized to the uh, to the voting booth so that they can keep their power in Wisconsin. Why, why do Republicans care about Wisconsin so much as opposed to maybe some other states? Why was that their 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 uh, petri dish? Right, right. I, and I think that's a, that's a great um, um, a great question. And I think there is a two word answer, and that's the Bradley Foundation. I mean, that's one of the largest and possibly not oldest, but largest. Um, very, I mean, I wouldn't say a conservative organization, but a right-wing organization. And so they looked at Wisconsin, um, this is their home state, and they started making, this This goes back to the 1980s and the 1990s, where one step at a time, one dollar at a time, one office holder at a time, they started doing those things. And that really is the MO of the, of the conservative right-wing movement going all the way back to the 1970s. I mean, they created this little old legal club called the Federalist Society back in the late 70s, early 80s. And they were fine. I mean, they were fine waiting in quarter of a century, 20, 25, 30 years. They knew that they would get there. And they did. And of all the states out there, Wisconsin really has been bearing, bearing the brunt of that experiment. But notwithstanding, um, you know, this is a state with a very proud progressive tradition. And you have people who are carrying on that tradition, people like John Nichols, who is the correspondent for the, for, for the nation. Um, and, and like I said before, you had Russ Feingold. And you also had the legacy of the modern environmental day move, uh, the modern day environmental movement with Gaylord Nelson. And uh, I think that there's a lot of things that you can point to, both in terms of our roots and, you know, you know, and more recently, I really, really believe that there is a very strong, very durable, uh, progressive economic populist vein that runs through this state. It goes back to the progressive era, but you've also seen in a relatively strong labor movement that unfortunately has come upon hard times, but there are glimmers of hope. And that was the case in my book, recounting how the Steelworkers Local uh, got together and saved a paper mill, something, a story that you don't see too often. Um, the paper mill is very important in Wisconsin. It's a huge industry. I remember when uh, uh, we were facing the toilet paper sh shortage just a year ago, <laughs> I remember reading all these stories about how uh, there were all these paper mills that were producing toilet paper in Wisconsin. They couldn't, it was, it was right. amazing to hear this, the stories behind this, but um, why, why were they pushing to shut down paper mill? What's happening there with the paper mills? Well, that was just simply the case of a, of a mom and pop paper mill that was 129 years old, 128 years old, and they just happened to come upon tough times. They had a business model that they were going to transition from the older white grades to the brown packaging grades, which, of course, is a very, very lucrative uh, market considering all the shipping that is going on, all the e-commerce, especially during this, this pandemic. And what happened, it was this greedy bank, PNC bank bank that decided, you know what, we can call the note. We have all of this investment in other uh, competitors of, uh, of Appleton Coded, and we're going to pull the note because we can. And they started acting, behaving like a payday lender in the time between announcing the receivership and going through it. They were extracting $50,000 a day out of that paper mill penalties. Look, they had completely written us off and we decided, you know what, we can do this. We took advantage of a little known law in Wisconsin receivership law, which is kind of like bankruptcy. We, we prevailed on a local judge to give us a second chance. We showed that this business model could work and it was hugely successful. 
And the epilogue to this, which I don't mention in the book, or actually I do, I think in the last last chapter, is the scrap dealer that bought Appleton coded that was going to scrap it until we said you can make money and we can bring back workers. They ended they ended up flipping that mill two years later, making almost eighty million dollars. Think about that. That industrial scrap dealer made $80 million essentially because a local union said, we have faith in our mill. It's been around here since 1889, and we're going to keep this going. Has this been um, replicated anywhere else in Wisconsin or, or in other communities? Yes, that's a good question. Uh, last year, so this would have been about two years, yeah, yeah, two years after the Appleton Coded case, there was another mill in this case. It was Flambeau River Paper in Park Falls, Wisconsin. That's about three hours away from here. It's the same thing. I think it was almost just as old as Appleton Coded. And we actually used, not only did we use the same strategies we did in App Appleton Coded, we, um, the steel workers were there. So we did the same route of objecting to it. And we also used the former CEO as a consultant. So that's another example of how it was used. But that's a good question. Not only is it the example of receivership law, but it is the larger story is how a community can come together. And I propose a tripartite model of organized labor, local business, and local government coming together to improve the lives of their community, saving a mill. The same thing can happen in manufacturing, quite frankly, any other industry. Um, before we get to your race, I, I'm curious: has has anything transpired? Have there been have has there been any sort of progress um, since you've now had a Democratic governor? I mean, a few years ago, I covered the race uh, for that. There was a very crowded field uh, for governor, and you know there was it was palpable just how frustrated people were. Um, you know, for folks who may not recall, uh, the legislature was there was there was a huge. Um, storming of the Capitol in a good way, I should say, uh, with activists uh, in in Wisconsin, you know, trying to reverse some of these horrible, horrible laws um, that, you know, Republicans have had put on you. So there was an appetite, a very like palpable appetite for change. Do you feel like that's taken place or there's been enough um, I think that this, I think we are potentially looking at a third blue wave. I hate to like, you know, jinx ourselves though, but I think the point you're trying to make, you know, things are not all hunky-dory. I mean, we still have a legislature where they're, well, well you know, uh, where we are in a deep minority. The Republicans are not at a supermajority. In fact, it is so severe that one of the strategies the state Democratic Party had last year was uh, save the veto. And so the focus was to not allow for Republican supermajorities in both houses at the very least. They were successful. We were to, you know, you know, maintain a, you know, a very deep minority. Um, but, you know, as long as the legislature's in that position, you're right, it is palpable. And I don't think that's going to go away anytime soon. Um, you have a, a primary. <laughs> and I saw this clip uh, of your primary opponent. Uh, I don't, I'm actually not going to even set it up because I think he sets it up very well of who he is. But you do have an opponent. Um, let's play this clip real quick. I'd love to get your reaction. You know, I mean, I was excited by the fact that, like, hey, we were, like, possibly going to buy a basketball team. Um, and, like, to me, that was, like, you know, and I know for my dad, that was always, like, a dream of his. Um, I didn't know much about Milwaukee. Um, 
um, you know, I knew the Brewers. I knew the Packers were in Wisconsin. Uh, I had been to Wisconsin one other time. Uh, I went to Oshkosh to uh, help volunteer for Hillary in the primary in 08 um, with my sister. And that was it. My first time to Milwaukee was when we came to meet with Senator Colt um, about possibly purchasing the team. And, you know, like I, I came in with kind of trying to like with just keeping an open mind about the city. Um, you know, the only places I'd lived in prior were um, New York, Philly and D.C. Um, so, you know, kind of bigger East Coast cities. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I came here, I think what most surprised me about Milwaukee is the fact that Milwaukee has all of the same things that any other city, especially any other big city, has. Oh, my God. Did he do this during the campaign? <laughs> all right. I mean, I'm not sure <laughs> if I need a comment, though. Um, look, Alex is, is a friend. Um, I got to know him uh, pretty well when he um, arrived. I think it was, I'm not sure when it was, six, seven years ago. We were actually connected because his um, intern advisor was one of my old roommates. Uh, so kind of a small world there. Uh, but, you know, Alex, um, great guy. I've known him for some time. And I think that there are a lot of differences, uh, both with regard to our background, I think what we bring to the race and what we want to do. Um, in in the U.S. Senate. Fair enough. Um, I think you know w- what's revealed in that video is is just uh, not just being disconnected from the community, even if it's been six or seven years, but just uh, how he embraces a community. Um, but I think you will have a comment on what Senator uh, Johnson was caught saying a few days ago and how he's doubled down. Let's play that clip. I knew those are people that love this country that. Uh, truly respect law enforcement, would never do anything to, to break a law. And so I wasn't concerned. Now, had the tables been turned, Joe, this could be in trouble. Had the tables been turned and President Trump won the election, and those were tens of thousands of Black Lives Matter and Antifa protesters, I might have been a little concerned. I mean, this has been getting so much national attention. Uh, Senate leadership has called him out. I mean, this is... Uh, how how is it playing on the ground in Wisconsin? That's that's I, yeah, yeah. I think about. that I you know people are just furious, and it's not just Democrats or Democratic primary voters. It's just across the board. I mean, I mean even Republicans are kind of looking at it like just I mean they're just kind of looking away from this. It really is an embarrassment, but I don't think it's so. I mean, it is an embarrassment, but it's hurtful. It's wrong, and how it. You know, it, I mean, it really hurts a lot of people. I think that that's kind of been lost in this whole debate. Yes, those were awful co- comments. Yes, it was it was embarrassing, though, but they were hurtful comments. And there's a lot of people in Wisconsin. There's a lot of people in Ottawa County um, that I think were really hurt by those. And I think this is all the more reason why he needs to resign. And I'm not just talking on sticking around to next year. If he's going to run, he's going to re- run. I mean, we are going to defeat him soundly. But I think for the good of the nation, the good of the state, he needs to resign and he needs to resign now. Are there other people calling for his res- resignation in Wisconsin? Um, we were the first ones uh, shortly after the insurrection. I looked at them like, yep, we're done with this. This guy's got to resign. And of course, quite a few people followed up. And, you know, as they said, I mean, and rightfully so. Um, but yeah, I mean, others are doing that. Um, and I think it's I think it's important. I think it's important that it happens because you need to have a chorus of people 
who are saying the same thing, in this case, calling for a resignation. But, you know, regardless, if someone else is going to call for the resignation, I will continue to call on him to resign all the way up until Election Day. And if you were to resign and, and say there was a chorus of Republicans, his colleagues, uh, local Republicans, Republican Party, whoever, Mitt Romney, uh, <laughs> that, that also called for him to resign, um, what happens next? Like, how does, how does, does the governor appoint somebody? What's the... How does this all play out? Uh, that's a good question. I believe that, that that the governor does not appoint someone. So I think that there would be a special election. That was the case. And this, this goes back many, many years um, after Joe McCarthy left the U.S. Senate. So we can start making comparisons with Joe McCarthy and Ron Johnson. I think that could be another two or three or four segments. Uh, so there was a special election. And the great Bill Proxmire won that seat, who is a storied, who is a legendary elected official here, here in Wisconsin. So um, he needs to resign. Bottom and then there's, then there's the primary on each side, or is it just like a job? Right. Okay, very interesting. Um, so if he doesn't resign, what's next for your campaign? What, wh how are you guys, uh, when, when is your primary date for the Democratic primary, and what can people do to help you out? Um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're going to continue to do this regardless, uh, you know, of what Senator Johnson does. I mean, we have a message. This has been a very, very effective campaign. We have been gaining support. We have quintupled followers on social media just in the last month, month or so. We're getting endorsements. People can come to our website, Nelson4WI.com. The same thing for, uh, for both Twitter and for Facebook. And this is a people-powered grassroots campaign. I don't have billions. I don't have billions. It's kind of like I'm living a Bernie Sanders stump speech, you know, billionaires and millionaires. That's going to be the next 18 months of my life. <laughs> you were a Bernie delegate. <laughs> yep, that's right. All right. Thank you so much, Thomas Nelson, uh, for, for joining us today. Go check out his website. We'll put it in uh, the information section on, on our site, uh, on YouTube and on Twitch. But in the meantime, good luck. What's that primary date again? Second week in August. Second Tuesday. week in August. Yep. There we go. So we right have an August primary. Summer. Yeah. So Wisconsin it's in the late is primary. Beautiful in the summertime. It is. It my is. family used to go to Wisconsin Dells. Great memories for my oh, family. Really? Well, I was in Buffalo. <laughs> Just like Buffalo in the summer. All Wisconsin all right. is beautiful all all year long. <laughs> you're, you're campaigning well. Take care, Thomas. Thank you. We will be right back with our extraordinary camp panel, uh, Joshua Con Russell, and not Napoleon Dynamite, Napoleon's a legend. <laughs> I'm embarrassing. You know, it's got, we got to do a mashup of all these, uh, these, these gaffes. I'm starting to feel like Joe Biden, but much, much, much younger. All right, everybody, we'll be right back after the break. Hello, welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Uh, book club members are probably in the midst of their second book. They probably just got it called The Corona Crash. It is by Grace Blakely. Uh, we have an incredible month with our book club. And if you're not a book club member, you can go check us out at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. There are all different types of book club levels. One book a month, two books a month four books a month. Uh, we have just finished up Mackenzie Works book. I think a podcast is going to go up uh, probably early next week. It is Capital is Dead. Is this something else? It's fascinating. It's about how data and and uh, capitalism is being built off of like data. Now you've got these, um, I forgot what they're called. The, like the, the, this was in the news last week, how these new um, pieces of art are 
basically like digital items that are stamped. I mean, that's a perfect example of how capitalism is being built off of like nothing, like information. Um, really interesting book. I'm not summarizing it very well, but we'll talk about it with Mackenzie Work. And The Corona Crash is our second book of the month. So those of you who have two books a month, you should have that. And then for the crazy ones like me, we have Hostile Environment and Rentier Capitalism. That's coming up for the rest of the month. You definitely want to check it out. Um, it's been an incredible run. I, I, that's probably why I'm, I have so many gaffes as I'm spending so much time reading <laughs> with the rest of you. So I'd love to hear if other book club members are feeling the same, a little, a little stretched thin, but it's definitely an incredible, uh, challenge. So go check it out at patreon.com slash the Nomi key show. Napoleon, the legend and Joshua Khan Russell are here for our panel today. Uh, Joshua Khan Russell is, of course, the executive director of the Wildfire Project, and Napoleon Legend is is still setting up, but he is an Afrobeat hip hop artist. I believe he has a new album out that might be sold out. Napoleon, you know what I called you earlier? It just came out. Know. I called you Napoleon Dynamite in my opening. <laughs> <laughs> you won't be the first. You won't be the last. Trust me. What was that? I was. That's why I said I'm the gaffes today. My God. How come you haven't titled the song that yet? Nah, I mean, I don't want to, because I, I'll never be able to shake it off if I, if I make a song like that. And I'm already trying to shake it off. You know what I mean? Smart, smart. It's like, hey, Mickey, you're so fine, which was my fifth grade, the fifth grade song everyone sang at the school dances. Hey, Mickey, I went by Mickey. No, it was the easiest thing for, for fifth grade. It's <laughs> not a bad nickname to have, though. When I finally got to high school, I was like, my name is Nomi Key, and you're going to say it. And then they were like, all right, Nomi. So that's how I got Nomi. <laughs> you don't make a nickname. They make a nickname. That's how it works. <laughs> right. All right, guys. Uh, we got a lot to talk about today, and it's, it's interesting. I just want to start with The View, because Joy Behar, who's like the progressive, I guess, on the panel, uh, she claims that Antifa does not exist uh, during a segment with on uh, Senator Ron Johnson's comments. I mean, I feel like she meant well, but we just talked about Senator Ron Johnson in the previous segment uh, with uh, with Thomas Nelson, who's running for U.S. Senate in Wisconsin. Let's just let's play this clip and, and um, assess. Right out there with his racism. There's no dog whistle for him. You know, it's like, I'm a racist. Mm -hmm. Have a nice day. You know what I mean? I guess you know, it's mm -hmm. funny when I was watching yeah. this, it's so aggravating to listen to this idiot. I mean, he and I are very different. I'll tell you this right now. If I was surrounded by people carrying weapons, uh, people erecting nooses, a screaming hang Mike Pence, bludgeoning a police officer to death, I might be a little scared. But Ron, no, he's not scared <laughs> of those people. He's scared of this fictitious idea of Antifa, a thing that doesn't even exist. He needs to go. He needs to go, and soon. I love this clip because I'm like, you're almost there. You're almost there. The organization doesn't exist. You kind of got it. You kind of got it. But anyways, I mean, listen, it's funny, and, and I'm, I'm glad that she's calling him out and people are calling him out to, to step down, and, and you know, I'd be curious to see if Meghan McCain uh, was one to call him out. Maybe that'll bring the Republicans in and, the you know, the, the uh, not the McCains, the uh, uh, Mitt Romneys in to, to get him to step down. But, I mean, Napoleon, uh, oh, man. Does Antifa have to issue a statement on, on their company letterhead to say, we are here, <laughs> don't you see us? I mean, it's, uh, th th that, that, that's the world they want to live in, you know what I mean? Like they, 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 they rather uh, not acknowledge that side of things 
and 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 push it to the side uh, because it's it's just much more confident, uh, comfortable for their worldview and, and, and where they want to be, and um, so that they're gonna keep um, not acknowledging the fact that you know that that there are uh, some of us on the left that you know are are a little bit more radical than they may be. That's, mm-hmm. a, that's an interesting point, um, Joshua. I mean, is this just an extension of like? basically the blacklist of of leftists who aren't allowed to go on cable news shows or appear in any sort of corporate media. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen anyone in Antifa on corporate media anyway, but the, you know, in, in fairness, what she first said is their idea of Antifa, and that doesn't exist. Like the, the GOP's concept of what Antifa is, that is totally a fiction, right? Um, and so if we want to be charitable and say that she was saying that, um, I would agree with that. But I also think, you know, what, what y'all are saying is true that they, I, I think the liberal discomfort uh, with um, owning the full left and not constantly disavowing the parts that are inconvenienced to their story, um, particularly of like their story of respectability is, um, is a constant challenge, right? And it's not just a challenge on cable news media, but it's tricky even within movements of, um, you know, who speaks for what movement in what way and at what point, you know, where do you draw lines um, between, you know, um, supporting the full spectrum of, of resistance uh, even when, you know, the news media tends to go towards spotlighting things that can be damaging. And I'm not talking about Antifa right now. I'm just talking about uh, in general. And it's it's tricky, you know, and I think that's but that's part of why we need to develop a politic of solidarity and actually becoming literate about what is going on in different parts of the left, um, especially Antifa, because they've become this, um, you know, uh, what's the phrase? Boogeyman? Uh, was, yeah, the boogeyman <laughs> of the right. I was going to say, yeah. At some kind of man, straw man, boogeyman, all the, the, the man. <laughs> <laughs> the man. Who knew all along Antifa was the man? <laughs> right. I mean, right. They're, they're, they are, I just want to say, like, having, having the specter of something where they can project all their fears onto is the way that the right operates, right? So whether they're doing that to Obama being a Muslim terrorist or whether they're doing it to Antifa, that's the ultimate game they're playing. And the liberals play into those hands by basically being like, oh yeah, we're not like them because they're not a threat. They're not even real. And so it actually shores up that, um, that tactic that the right has. I mean, that's exactly what Obama did. And and he, he wouldn't in the beginning, he wouldn't even play game, um, with Fox News and they were like, cool, you're fine. We're just going to run and that. He admits that's a mistake. Now he should have had people on countering their opinions when Fox News invited people from the administration, other Democrats on. Uh, they used to say no. And then they changed that because it was so out of hand that, you know, sometimes that does make a difference. And that's why we always say if, if a Democrat goes on Fox, don't agree with them. You have to challenge it because believe it or not, some people do hear it. Um, anyways, I, uh, I, I I have to say, speaking of Fox News, Fox News is, of course, going to be obsessed with the border crisis that's happening. It has it's not new. Uh, it didn't start with Trump. It started before uh, and it has not gone away. And since Biden has taken office, there's been a surge of migrants Um they're moving people around from the detention centers, putting into different uh, locations. It's it's a major crisis. Let's play this clip with uh, the official who's overseeing uh, the border coordinator on Biden's border policy. We were going to enforce our laws, but also have a humane migration system. And I think what he means is that we are going to treat people fairly. We are going to reform our immigration system. 
Um, and so while I understand what he was saying, I think that it, it's, it's not the way we would put it. It is a more humane system, but it is not open borders, and it is not the fact we're going to enforce our law. So it's a more humane. Um, the walls are painted a nice blue. Uh, <laughs> they get a blanket. <laughs> they get one meal a day rather than once every three days. It's just humane detention centers. Napoleon, I mean, you've you've been in uh, done a lot of work in Europe, and this is there's a migration crisis in Europe in which it's a humanitarian crisis. There have been fires that have broken out in these these places. Um, UN investigations. Uh, I mean, where does the buck stop? I mean, that's that's my question on this is, is are they just trying to figure out how to fix the problem that got so much worse under Trump? Or is there really like, are they really trying to navigate this gray zone? That's probably probably a little bit of both. It, 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 it seems like they're uneasy every time they have to talk about it. They rather not have to deal with it. And people keep bringing it up and they're like, if we focus on the pandemic or other things and not talk about this because it's really bad on their optics. And the problem with this whole situation is there's a lack of transparency. Like, honestly, that we don't really know what's going on. And I doubt that it's like peaches and cream over there in, in those so-called dissension centers or whatever they want to call it. I'm not sure a lot has changed. It is a problem. It's I, I can acknowledge that it's probably not easy to fix, you know, but um, because they, 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 there's people coming in illegally and they have to, to see how to handle it. I, I think that with a situation like that, I would love it for it to for them to be transparent and tell the truth and, and kind of acknowledge the fact that there's a crisis and we're trying to see solutions. But that that's never going to happen. You know what I'm like? It's, it's like they're never going to they're never going to just fess up and say, like, you know, this is out of hand. We don't we're, we're trying to find solutions and we're open to other solutions. But, you know, it's, they they rather sweep it under the rug. I mean, it would be amazing to see him go bold, especially with Kamala Harris, who called it a humanitarian crisis. She went to the uh, to one of the detention centers with other presidential uh, primary candidates in just last year in Florida. I mean, I think what's so concerning is like regular liberals are like, wait, 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 what? We were this was this was so bad just like two months ago. And now there are more migrants at the border. I would love to see them go to the border champion some plan even if it's not perfect which she's admitted it's not going to be perfect it's going to take time go there feel the pain recognize the crisis you know connect the dots a little bit maybe loop in some foreign policy changes sweeping foreign policy changes the global south uh that could make it better at least in the long term who knows i mean mm -hmm. joshua like what wh what do you think is 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 the right thing to do well, first, you know, the administration's playbook of Jen Psaki constantly comparing themselves to Trump, right? Constantly comparing themselves to an intentional punitive policy of kidnapping children. That's not a good look, right? That's basically saying, constantly saying we're not as bad as them is, you know, it's the broken record of how of, of democratic excuse making in general, right? Um, but I mean, it's like saying, well, we're not as bad as Nazis, you know, like there's just, it's such a, exhausting, tired way of talking about things. Um, and I, I totally, you know, I agree with what, like, I, I'm not pretending that there's easy solutions. However, the amount of resources that the federal government has at its disposal to fulfill a commitment that it, the, even it acknowledged was a humanitarian disaster. I mean, it's inexcusable that kids are being detained for over 100 hours, which is breaking the law, right? It's inexcusable that they're not um, marshalling the resources to connect kids with their families more efficiently than that. It's inexcusable that even 
when they have intermediaries that they're that they're keeping them in these facilities rather than say a daycare with people who uh, are trained to work with children, right? That it's still uh, this paradigm of viewing people as uh, illegal or as potential criminals uh, rather than viewing children as, as children, right? That, that what are they gonna do, get to the border and then go on like a crime spree and run away? Like it's, the, the fears around that are so overblown and ridiculous. And so, um, you know, I'm not saying that there's like a silver bullet answer, but e even, e even by their own metrics of, of easing the existing framework uh they're just it's failing and i and also i mean it's hearing you say that napoleon of just like why can't they just acknowledge that like they're not doing very well and it's hard it is is also amazing to me that just sort of hubris instead of, instead of like I, I actually think most people i mean especially their audience would be very reasonable to say like oh you didn't you didn't reach your goal tell us why you know tell us what's going on and i i but I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's not like we haven't dealt with refugees before. I mean, this is what's so mind-boggling to me. There is a precedent here. There's a precedent uh, over history here. Over, there's a precedent in Europe. This is, like you said, we have the resources to facilitate this, and they're just frozen. This is the way I look at the Biden administration right now. They're frozen between letting go of their benefactors and understanding that they have no choice but to move on some things. And they're doing it. In, it's not even incrementalism. It's, it's, it's like baby steps, like teasing in, like, you know, oh, okay, well, instead of Medicare for all, well, well let's just let's just offer states that haven't expended Medicaid uh, two, twice as much money for it. And they're still saying no. Oh, look, at we caught them. We, look, they're racist. Now we can show the whole world that they're racist and then they won't get reelected. Everything is a plot and it's a long-term plot, but the crises are so immediate beyond what they, I mean, they were immediate before the recession. They were immediate before the pandemic, but it's, it's like, we're about to be living in Hooverville and he's going to have so many compounding crises that if he doesn't deal with this right now with the money that he has, he, 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 there's no way Biden's going to get out of this. Well, and here's the bigger picture with it, which is that to, what the last administration, God, why am I not remembering his name? The the kind of evil vampire racist, uh, the oh. balding guy who's- What? Last administration? In, 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 in the Trump Stephen administration. Miller? Stephen yeah. Oh, Stephen, Stephen Miller. Oh, I thought you meant oh, Trump. I was like, no, 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 no. Please do uh, forget Stephen Miller's yeah, name. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. That was, that was an interesting slip. So um, <laughs> like the vampire guy. Uh, so what Stephen Miller understood, actually, and what I think his his wing of white nationalism, they they get that the climate crisis is happening, and therefore the future is going to mean that there are going to be an astronomically increased amount of refugees who are fleeing everything from natural disasters to the economic consequences of them. And so what they tried to do in the last four years is put together a different system, right? By even by just starting to demonize refugees in general, that that was a specific project, right? And so they were trying to re-engineer the uh, immigration system because they are anticipating that happening. And what is is the left doing that? I mean, certainly not the Democratic Party. If the Biden administration understood, oh, we need to actually shift the architecture of this system because the strain on it is only going to grow, right? So rather than um, basically just trying to make more humane the existing infrastructure that is not humane at all. And I mean, even that word is ridiculous um, to me. It's like how you talk about animals, right? There's like, um, it's just gross and it's not forward thinking and it's not visionary. Final thoughts, Napoleon, on that? Anything else? 
Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, it, it's kind of what, what you you both are saying. I, I think they would benefit, and we would all benefit from just ha they're having a plan to show that they're they're acknowledging that there's a crisis. The crisis is going to get worse, and we need to take some serious steps. And uh, they just have a bold plan for the future because it's only going to get worse. And it feels like they 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 want to deal with these type of crises with just straight talking points and just hoping that there's something else that is going to make people forget and not 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 talk about it anymore. Yep, it's like it's they they think we're living in the '90s that the economy is booming and um, you know and they can just coast. Uh, I want to pivot a little bit just just quick before we wrap up to uh, a New York City mayoral candidate who is leading in the polls right now. Of course, I'm talking about Andrew Yang. God help us. Joshua, you still live in New York. Napoleon, you are a New Yorker. All right, let's, let's put up the Andrew Yang tweet. This is Dana Rubenstein, not my favorite reporter. Uh, <laughs> just as a side note, I wasn't actively involved in local politics and I was living in New York and you know, New York is so blue that there isn't that much to be engaged with politically. Oh my God, man. Just give it to me for, this is my little one. Oh my God, this is the guy who thinks that you can have selfie stations or whatever he's calling them to do like, you know, Instagram influencer stations. Um, I feel like they're, they're effing with us. I just, I mean, in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of an economic crisis, at a point where, you know, say what you will about the um, about the Cuomo and, and de Blasio situation, they were, there was a back and forth pull. I mean, there are a lot of issues with de Blasio, but let's just be very clear here. And I have to say this, I don't throw a lot of bones to de Blasio often, but uh, compare him to Bloomberg, compare him to Giuliani. I mean, the last few, with the exception of Dinkins, I mean, this is, this is, he doesn't know how to handle the media. He was fighting with Cuomo all the time. If Cuomo had never been in office, maybe de Blasio would have been able to, to do more. But this man is your solution to the de Blasio Cuomo scandal. The guy who's like, well, there's no need to do, to be civically involved at all. Like, I, you know, it's just, there's an app for that. Is this a symptom? I mean, but real, like, let, let's, let's assess this. Is this a symptom of a new form of like neoliberal? I, I don't even know if it's neoliberal, like neotech. I don't it, like a robot politics. Joshua, you're in, you're in uh, Northern California. I feel like you might be able to speak to this more. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I was just remembering when, when you were reading that, that clip of, and this is the, pretty much the only thing I've seen Andrew Yang do. I, I've not been following him since the presidential race, but I, and when he was going on a, like a tour where he was like, this is a bodega. And he's in like some corner store. That's definitely not a bodega. It's a <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but that that kind of pandering is um, I just don't I don't I don't know who who any who any of that plays to. I, I just really don't. I, I get Andrew Yang's appeal in other ways, right? I, I get I get the um, the, the, the fact, you know, the UBI appeal, for example, but most of what he was running on in the presidential race was national oriented policy. And so for him to say like, well, there's no, nothing locally to fix in New York makes sense to me because he, he's, he's not looking at, at solutions that are actually locally grounded or, um, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know that I can tie it into San Francisco. Uh, I, I don't know that our policy, as far as, you know, I'm I mean, not the seeing a lot sector, of tech. I mean, like, like, you know, the, how they've kind of, there's this new model of a Democrat, like Cory Booker kind of started this trend because he's not, but he was like the tweeter and then he was mm -hmm. in with the tech companies and Hollywood, you know what I mean? 
Yeah, it's, I mean, the tech culture in the Bay Area is shifting so quickly that it's actually hard for me to keep up with the political implications of it. Like it's definitely changing, you know, in terms of the voter base of who people are attracted to, but I haven't seen tech people run as much, especially like, Brock Pierce. you know, it's that what? Brock Pierce ran for president. The, He's the well, uh, crypto king who's the, trying to colonize Puerto Rico. Well, I just mean in the Bay Area. Yeah. And so, yeah. Um, Napoleon, how's the subway doing in New York? Uh, I, I, I'm not sure. I ha haven't been. You've taken uh, this. It hasn't changed. Let me just be clear. It hasn't uh, changed since you've been on the subway in the pandemic. The, the, the last Bottom time I rode the subway, it, it was actually a, a little bit less people. So it was like easier to get from A to B. Yeah. But it, it's like Andrew Yang, he's, he, he's just, I feel like, yeah, it's all image with him. It's all about being the, the cool guy. I, 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 I sense a lot of like Elon Muskism. And uh, Tony Starkism, like you know, like uh, you know, Iron Man and Marvel type things, where he's trying to be—he's like above it all. And and um, they, they, I think there's a fan right. base for that type of person. I'm not—I'm not sure. It, I, I, electorally, I don't know if it could—he could, could win anything in New York or any, a, a, anywhere else. But they, they, there's like this crypto tech savvy type cool guy that's gonna save the world with like big ideas, you know? So it's like, he's above anything that could be local and what's going on because he's just he's just a different type of politician. I think that's that that's how he's trying to position himself. And um, I think it's dangerous, frankly, like I don't want people like that in politics. Uh, you want people who actually care, who are involved, who's not scared to get their hands dirty. I don't care about, you know, like how cool you are and, you know, nah. Here's the math for you, Andrew Yang. I'm looking at you. Uh, the budget's in a, the, you have a budget crisis. Uh, you have a public school uh, crisis in which public schools have been severely underfunded for over a decade and also illegally so. You're gonna have to maneuver that. You have a NYCHA crisis. You're gonna have to use, uh, you're gonna have to, to, to work with the federal government with the public housing situation, which is a crisis. You have a homeless crisis. You have a, a small business crisis in, in which Every single small business, I can't believe the statistic I read a few months ago, did not pay the rent in the city. So you wanna use your math? Do me a favor, pay attention to what's happening locally. As a New Yorker, I'm insulted that this is still going on. And like, you know, and, and to other Democratic candidates, you know, maybe you should start throwing some fire because that's the only way he's gonna feel the pressure. It's not happening through Twitter. It's clearly not happening with Dean Rubenstein. She was more obsessed with throwing hit pieces against me a few years ago. I mean, but they're more obsessed with the left. They're more obsessed with going after the left than they are against Andrew Yang because they don't think it's real. But he's leading in the polls. This is the first ranked choice voting uh, primary that we'll see. And the elections on June 23rd, I believe, or the end of June. We got to start taking this seriously. It's no joke. If you were scared of Trump, this is the alternative version for New York. And the guy doesn't even understand the crises that the city is crumbling right now. And he thinks, oh, it's totally fine. It's a blue state. Yeah, Cuomo, he's great. Haven't you seen? Like, he made That's this comment right now. That part is such a tell, too, to say to say it's a blue state, therefore it's OK. That tells you everything you need to know about his worldview, whether he's paying attention or not. Yeah. Is that like, oh, it's it's the game of Democrats versus Republicans. All of the problems are the cultural grievances we have against the GOP. And that um, so th that's the tell right there, even beyond him saying, I don't actually know anything about the state that I'm running in. He's not reading the newspapers. Governor Cuomo is in a downward spiral. What? <laughs> All right, that's my, my moment. <laughs>
<laughs> we're going live guys <laughs> like I'm just so pissed off at this guy. All right, Joshua Con Russell, thank you for joining us. Napoleon's Thanks Legend so or Napoleon Dynamite, whatever you want to call him today. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Go check out your album. Is it sold out? What's the deal with it? Well, the the, the vinyl, the, the physical copies are sold out. Uh, however, you could get it. You could uh, get it on iTunes or any other uh, type of uh, digital uh, platform. It's called The Hole in My Heart. The hole with a W, so it's like the hole and hole. the hole. It's a, it's a you know, play Double on entendre. words. Yeah. yeah, exactly. All right, thanks, guys. We'll see you very soon. And yeah. to everybody in the chat, let's do some shout-outs here. We've got Luke Kang. What will America do with its future climate migrants from coastal cities? Great question. I don't think Biden's gotten to that part yet. <laughs> Daniel from California, if Antifa doesn't exist, then who stormed the Capitol on January 6th? Ha ha ha, sarcasm. Also, Nightbot is a bot, so no need to thank it. Oh, I didn't know that. Interesting. Okay. Dorsey, the producer. I love Nightbot. <laughs> Kyler Asado. Ooh, Nomiki, have you considered having Tim Shepard on? He's a progressive pastor person running for... Sorry, I'm still laughing. Uh, running for Senate in Missouri, and he's pretty interesting. We will put that down. Thank you for sharing that, Kyler. Also, Kyler says, or maybe Michaela Wilkes. I don't know. She's running against Denny Hoyer in Maryland, where there's a progressive infrastructure being built heavily and quickly. Yeah, I have to look back into her base. I saw that she she decided she's running again. Um, I'm going to take a look at that, because Denny Hoyer, man. All right. Uh, what else do we have? Or just say, oh, God, I, 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 these are notes to me, Dorsey. I'm getting mixed up. <laughs> Uh, thank you to Professor Harvey K, who's in the live chat on both Twitch and YouTube. Uh, I know that there is a Harvey K emoji. I don't think they're called that on Twitch. Please don't make fun of me, okay? I'm going to play the game, I promise. I'm going to learn Twitch. I'm going to get in with the Twitch culture. It's going to happen. I'm re you know, I'm learning it. I have to, like, live it. I have to do the, the lived experience. So we will play a game when we hit... I believe 75 subs, right? On YouTube, not on Twitch. All right, Midi Docs and Mario, thank you for working those algorithms. And as always, huge thanks to Bob C. Choke in the Orb and Chuck Diesel on YouTube and Dorian Sapiens, A Difficult Truth, Nightbot, The Bot, <laughs> Our Means, and Nug Wrangler on Twitch for keeping the live chat troll free. Oh, Biden Pog. I guess that's one of our pogs. It's not emoji, it's a pog. What about the, is it a Harvey K. Pog also? I think so. No. Okay. Just, just getting, I'm getting more confused. Okay. This is like talking about sports with me. <laughs> All right. We will see you tomorrow for a great show. Uh, Wednesday, 3 p.m. Eastern right here on YouTube and Twitch. And thank you to all of our patrons who are checking us out through audio. We love you. Stay in solidarity. See you tomorrow.